Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe Weekly Podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the codename for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. Today we will be looking at G.I. Joe issue 278 with a very special guest, find out who in a second, as well as all of the regular favourites like Toy Talk and the segment that is completely reverential to the special and serious place that G.I. Joe exists in our hearts. It's Inuendo. And so without any further ado, let's introduce the Jiminy Cricket to my Pinocchio. It's my co-host, Tim. How are you, sir? I'm your conscience, Mark, <laughs> and I'm doing well. Don't lie to me ever. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, okay. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello, Talking Joe universe. How are you all? Yep, they're all listening because you did tell the internet. So um, it's uh, we have to be on our best behavior. But Tim, I'm not I'm going to stop talking to you because you're old hat. You're old news because we've got someone else joining the show this week <laughs> and i'm very excited to have them on board let's find out who it is all right stop whatever you're doing tj's back the airwaves were chewing rocking a gi joe podcast interview special questions will be asked will it ever stop yo i don't think so not as long as someone's publishing joe artists writers gi joe fanboys let's get things started and hope we don't annoy our guest in the studio right now they've come in for a chat discussing when where and how probing we're going in deep Anything left, we might as well be asleep. Questioning them about the G.I. Joe history. Unwrapping us is like a whodunit mystery. T.J. Interview. T.J. Interview. T.J. Interview. It is the artist of the very issue that we are talking about today. It's the artist of issue 278 of G.I. Joe. It is Dan Shoning a.k.a. Dapper Dan. He's an animator and comics penciler based in the city of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada. Or at least he was when this was written. We'll find out if that's still true. <laughs> Dan graduated from animation school in 2000 and has worked for companies such as Disney, Pixar, Archie Comics, DC Comics, Upper Deck, a.k.a. Studios, Ape Entertainment and IDW Publishing. He's been the artist on IDW books such as Back to the Future, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mega Man, and Ghostbusters. But most importantly for us to hear today, he is the artist on the book that we will be talking about on our show, G.I. Joe 278. Hello, Dan. 
Hey, thanks so much for having me. It is a pleasure to have you on board. I, I almost got tired thinking, or like when you were going through the list of all the stuff that I've done, I, <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I need more coffee. <laughs> <laughs> How thanks, on earth did thanks I get for having me on though. I, I appreciate it. No, it's great to have you on board. And, and uh, fact correcting time now, is everything mm -hmm. I just said true? Yeah, I think so. It, it sounds true. And if, if you added a few extra things, that's fine. It's okay to embellish. So. <laughs> very, very good. I, I left out what is possibly the most important thing from your uh, career history there, which is apparently that you worked at Toys R Us. Yeah, I did. I'm, I'm <laughs> impressed that when you was know that? this much about me. Um, <laughs> that was back in the 90s, so like the, the mid-90s I worked there. So right when uh, the Nintendo 64 was coming out. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, we had, we had some G.I. Joe toys there at the time, but it wasn't, I, don't, I think at the time in the 90s, from what I can remember, there weren't a lot of G.I. Joe toys out, but um, yeah, I... Sort I, of dwindling I, out was the, the late 90s there. there was yeah, it was like when the Kenner came out with the new Star Wars line and all that stuff. So, yeah, it was a while ago. <laughs> Time flies. Dan, do you remember the music that would play over the speakers Ooh. at your <laughs> Toys R Us? And did you have any control Ooh. over that music? You know, I can't remember. I think all the controls for the music was in the, the boss's office. Um, but, yeah, I think they had, like, a generic type elevator music. Occasionally, Girl from Ipanema would play, but uh, it was, uh, yeah, you know, it, it was uh, interesting to work there. And uh, not what I had expected when I applied because I thought, oh, geez, I get to play with these toys all day. And it actually ended up being like training to be a parent because you're actually picking up toys from other people constantly throughout the day. You're cleaning up. So it, it was, yeah, it was good a practice. There must be a lot of people, yeah, taking it off the shelf, having a lot, look, dumping it down wherever and, and constantly going around the aisles, picking yeah. them up, putting that back where they should be, right? Yeah, Dan, most definitely. <laughs> Dan, were you, did you work there during a holiday season? Oh, yeah. No, I worked there for about five years. So I was there when Tickle Me Elmo came out. So I, I knew what that was like. I don't know if you've ever seen Jingle All the Way with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Every holiday season, there's one toy everyone has to have. I want the Turbo Man action figure with the arms and legs that move, and the Rocket Roar jetpack, and the Boomerang shooter. Getting it is every child's dream. Whoever doesn't can be a real loser. Finding it. You got the doll, right? Is this father's nightmare. I'll get that toy. I promise. It's one of my favorite holiday films, but um, you know how they give out those balls to get the uh, Turbo Man doll? We kind of did something similar to that when I was working at Toys R Us with the Tickle Me Elmo. So we had to like auction off the few copies that, or the few dolls that we had. It was quite interesting how the fever pitch, you know, for that doll <laughs> during that season. So I think it ended up in people's closets by January the month after Christmas, so. <laughs> Very good. So I guess so you've, you've graduated from animation school in 2000, so that's almost mm -hmm. 20 years ago now. So you've, you yeah. must, must have had 20, 20 plus years in, in the business. What, mm -hmm. uh, what brought you to, uh, to animation and uh, drawing more, more generally? Um, you know, what, what got you to that point? Was it just a, a childhood fervor for, for, for drawing? Yeah, I would say so. Like I was, I kind of grew up 
on Saturday morning cartoons and uh, especially like the early Disney films, the Alice in Wonderland and uh, what other ones can I think of? Snow White, obviously, Pinocchio, Dumbo. So I, I grew up with that. And uh, of course, like I had mentioned, the Saturday morning cartoons, it was, I think I would have been about eight in 1984. So it was kind of right when I was getting into like really having some toys and really getting into the waking up early like like I am today <laughs> and, and watching all the shows. So uh, I think that was really my first also introduction to G.I. Joe was the uh, the Saturday morning cartoon. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I was right right into it at the time and I had quite a few of the action figures. So Okay. Yeah. So so was it it was cut was it cartoon first, then figures and, and did you did you dip your toes into the comic at that point? Yeah, no, I I did. Uh, it was definitely the cartoon that introduced me to the toys, and then uh, I I had quite a few of the action figures from what I remember. I didn't have a lot of the the larger, cool, um, <laughs> like the I always wanted the uh, F fourteen, the the jet fighter. Never got is that. that. What the the sky striker is that? Yeah, yeah, that's it. And the of course the holy grail was that aircraft carrier. I never mm, knew anybody right. who owned it, but. Uh, you know, you could see it in the the Sears catalog. And it's like, oh, it'd be nice to have that. <laughs> that would have been cool. But uh, yeah, no, and I did read uh, some of the comics growing up. But um, I, w- I was kind of more of a, a Spider-Man guy and a Batman and the Flash. Those were my favorites. So, but uh, yeah, the GI Joe comics were great, especially with the, when they crossed over uh, when Marvel had it with the Transformers. That was really mm-hmm. cool. I thought that was yeah. really neat. Dan, did you have a comic book store? Were there newsstands or bookstores that sold comics on spinner racks? Oh yeah, for sure. Back in the 80s we had, uh, I, I've been grateful to live in the same city pretty much my whole life and uh, we had this really amazing comic shop uh, downtown and uh, yeah, I know it was just, you know, you get that smell when you walk into a comic store with the, <laughs> the paper and just all these amazing pieces of art. Um, but uh, yeah, no, we had spinner racks, and we also had like you know you'd have comics at Seven Eleven and the corner stores. But yeah, luckily we had a, a great comic store here in town. So and now we have about three of them. So it's looking good. Ooh, <laughs> three comic book stores. Yeah, for a small city like I'm in, it's that's pretty impressive. <laughs> Excellent. So you mentioned the uh, you know obviously GI Joe uh, cartoons mm-hmm. and, and toys back in back in the eighties, but what was your you know real appointment uh, viewing for for those Saturday morning cartoons? Was there was there one that was a particular favorite that stood out? Ooh, well, I was a big fan of Muppet Babies. I really like that. <laughs> I know that's kind of left field, but um, you know Transformers, GI Joe. I watched all those. I loved Mask. Um, luckily, I've been able to do it. We did a couple covers for that one. IDW had the license for that, and uh, which kind of ties into GI Joe with uh, Matt Tracker. And uh, oh, yeah. what else is there? Um, oh, and Humanoids, I love that. Real Ghostbusters, obviously. I kind of have to say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, like uh, pretty much anything that was on Saturday morning, I liked. So excellent, golden yeah. age. So, mm-hmm. uh, and what? What was it that created the spark that, that um, got you drawing your, yourself, and, and how did uh, how did all that progress? I think the the biggest inspiration was um, the Dragon Slayer arcade game, which came out, I think it was oh, eighty three yeah. or eighty two, but um, that just 
think totally captured my imagination because I was like, look at this amazing animation done by like Disney animators. Um, yeah, I think it was Don yeah. Bluth, if I remember yeah, correctly. It was, so. Yeah, Don Bluth. Uh, yeah, he started his own studio after he left Disney with uh, John Pomeroy and Gary Goldman. And uh, with, uh, I can't remember, I think it was Rick... Uh, I can't remember his last name, but uh, they kind of formed together to create Dragon's Lair, that Laserdisc game, and they did the second one after. But that really captured my imagination. I was like, yeah, I really... This combined with those Disney animation movies that I talked about and the Saturday morning cartoons just kind of culminated... Am I pronouncing that right? I, it kind of came amalgamated together. That's yeah. the word I'm looking culminated, for. Culminated, yeah. Yeah, culminated, yeah, that's yeah. it. So yeah, it's, it's a bit early, still the coffee is kind of kicking in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that game was something else as well, particularly when you were playing in the arcade, because I think, you know, it was quite an expensive game. It was, where, like, where, a, where, you'd and, have to have lots of quarters ready. And you had to, like, press press the, the, the joystick exactly the right moment, and mm -hmm. you didn't. <laughs> yeah, it's more of a memory So the games game, would be really. just lasting seconds. Pretty much, yeah. But now I have it on Blu-ray, so I can play it on the TV, but I still am not that good at it. <laughs> Just watch it for the animation. Cool. So uh, you you followed uh, you followed on with the drawing and, and uh, actually went to to, to study at uh, animation school. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, I went to uh, Van Arts in Vancouver, and I was there for a whole year. It was like an intensive uh, one year traditional animation. So I learned the basics of hand drawn animation, and we did life drawing and storyboarding. Kind of covered everything that you would be doing on a production for TV or film. And uh, yeah, it was a, an excellent um, experience, very much worth the time. Mm. I think the, the most, the hardest thing was animating a horse, just to kind of <laughs> grasp your hand around four-legged animals, but um, it was uh, definitely an experience I would never trade for, and uh, it led into some amazing opportunities in the future, so yeah. Excellent. Um and and so so that sounded like it gave you a real actually sort of foundation of of all of the skills that you needed to to use in in animation. Did that that then springboard you into some actual career opportunities then in uh, in working in the business? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was even before I left. I actually started doing before I've finished uh, school. I started working on some commercials, uh, just storyboarding those. And then after that, I got a job uh, working at AKA Studios, which you had mentioned earlier, uh, working on a show called Ed, Ed and Eddie, which is on Cartoon Network. The irony was that they didn't play it in Canada. So <laughs> I had never actually watched a full episode. So when I got hired, they sat me in a room and I watched all of the episodes just to kind of catch up on that. So it was uh, quite um, an education in a short amount of time. <laughs> But uh, it was a lot of fun to work on that show because it was very creative. Um, the art style was really unique, and uh, the characters were really funny. So there's a lot of funny people working on that show at the time. Yeah, this might be jumping ahead because this is a little less biographical and more analytical. But mm -hmm. um, can you talk about storyboarding as training for drawing comics? Yeah. Or or animation school as training for drawing comics, which is a little different than than animating. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, the, I think the biggest difference for storyboarding for TV or film than comics is the use of time, because you can't jump around like you can in a comic. You have to kind of play out a full scene instead of 
jump jumping around uh, within different time frames that you can do in a comic book. So with storyboarding, it's more linear, I suppose. But um, it's great training because you get an idea of how comic books and, and animation and film are really about expressing a story and uh, expressing it in a way for like you're showing the viewer exactly what you want to see uh, for them to see and uh, yeah it's just another form of storytelling so it was a great springboard to get into comics and it was never my uh, general intention to get into comic books I just kind of uh, fell into it so to speak but um, <laughs> it was uh, yeah without that animation training I don't know I wouldn't have the same kind of respect for the story so because that's for me it's the key to have a really good story to start off with but uh, hopefully that answered your question <laughs> yeah um and my my second question uh is so uh comics tends to not pay as well as animation mm -hmm. and um i know artists who uh bounce back and forth or who you know go from one publisher to another or go from one small freelance to one large freelance job and they're just sort of cobbling it all together mm -hmm. um, you have been drawing comics seemingly exclusively for the last several years mm -hmm. uh, do you want to go back to animation do you aim to go back to animation yeah that's a good question you know I, it would be wonderful to do that again. I wouldn't be opposed if I was offered uh, something that was in animation. Uh, it's not really a goal, but if it came up, I would definitely do it. But it is good. I really like variety, so it's nice for me to kind of step out from doing one thing constantly for a while. So um, I, I currently I have a few things on the table that are completely different from each other, which helps keep things fresh. So. But um, I definitely wouldn't be opposed going back into animation, and it would be really nice to uh, to try it again. So if anybody's doing any animations, give me a mm -hmm. shout. <laughs> could could we safely uh, presume that uh, in working consistently on one property for one publisher, right, Ghostbusters at IDW, mm -hmm. that there is um, that they know you're reliable, mm -hmm. and you know that if the book keeps selling seemingly you'll you'll keep getting asked back so some of this i assume is a kind of reasonable job security and i'm going to assume you're a crazy ghostbusters fan yeah that would be correct on both terms <laughs> yeah definitely uh ghostbusters was a huge part of my life i saw the uh, the original film when it came out in the theaters uh, so it was uh that really sparked the fire for uh, wanting to draw proton streams for 10 years. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, definitely, uh, you, you mentioned how it doesn't pay as good as, uh, there's a lot more money in animation for TV and film than there are in comic books. But I think at the end of the day, I measure success by doing something that I love to do and not by a monetary value. So it definitely doesn't pay as good, but it's something that I love to do and I don't consider it work. So I think that's, uh, I'm yes. very grateful for that, yeah. I saw an, another another video of you talking about uh, some of your, your work on Ghostbusters and, and um, Back to the Future. And what struck me was, was as you're just saying, a, a real 
enthusiasm about in, enjoying sort of drawing mm -hmm. full stop and being paid for it but also on the on the properties that that you're working with and it's interesting you know seeing artists that are different different attitudes to it some some people are very much this you know this is my job you know mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doing it because i'm getting paid for it but, but i could i could you know what was coming across in that was this you know your real enthusiasm mm -hmm. uh, for, for doing what you're doing yeah and i i think that passion uh, no matter who the artist is it really shows um how much they love the property or the characters uh, when you're looking at the art or reading the story. So I think that makes a big difference. And the kind of, uh, I was very grateful that I was offered to do the issue of G.I. Joe. So, because uh, that was something that growing up, like I had mentioned, it was something that was a really integral part of my childhood. And uh, just to kind of pay a bit of homage back to, for all the, the great times playing with the action figures and puddles and stuff, uh, it's kind of my <laughs> payback. To Hasbro, excellent, and Larry. <laughs> so Dan, who who first contacted who about drawing an issue, and when was this, and what was the what was the the pitch or the remit? It was like, do you want to draw one issue of GI Joe? Yeah, actually, that was pretty much it. <laughs> it was uh, Tom uh, Waltz, who is my editor on Ghostbusters, also is the editor mm -hmm. on GI Joe, and. He had contacted me, I think it was like about a, a year ago, and he was like, oh, would you like to do a G.I. Joe issue? And I was like, oh, I'd, I'd love to do one. And uh, just because it was, I was already, we're kind of uh, finishing, I think, issue four of uh, Ghostbusters year one, and I was looking for some new stuff, and it was an opportunity to try something completely different. And uh, yeah, he was, Tom was like, well, I'm going to give you a choice of a few different issues. He, he th sent me back four different short little synopsises. And uh, as soon as I saw one of them was taking place in the Arctic, mm -hmm. I knew right away that was the one I wanted to do because those characters that I always loved, the, uh, the snow terrain characters a lot. So like Blizzard and Snowjob uh, are a couple of my favorites. So. It was a, I immediately knew that was the one I wanted to do. And uh, so I shot that back. And uh, thankfully, the colorist who I've worked with for 10 years, Luis Delgado, was available to color the uh, issue as well. And it kind of just formed from that. So, and uh, the, the process was a bit different than what I was used to. Uh, Larry's writing style is amazing. And it mm. really gave me a lot of opportunity to kind of take each scene into my own hands and kind of form it there's a lot more opportunity for creativity the way that he writes so and it, not to slight any other writer but it's a different form and uh yeah it was a lot of fun to try it out so. yeah sure it's it's more it's putting more uh more onus on on the uh the, the artist to interpret the the script and make the choices right rather than mm -hmm. you know rather than i guess uh, working to, to a more detailed version of, of what will look it will look like on on the on the plane. There. Yeah, most There's definitely. More more scope more scope for an artist to interpret in the, a Larry script in, in quite a different way mm -hmm. uh, because because it is is there is more left for interpretation of of how things end up on the on the page. Yeah. This also this also comes from Larry Hama having drawn comics. He knows mm -hmm. what he knows what an artist wants or needs or doesn't want because he was drawing comics for years before he wrote them. And, and I have read 
some Hama scripts, and they and there's a there's a visual quality to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. When you're when I was reading the script for the first time, I could already see images in my head, which really helps because then I can just put it on a paper. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it's it creates images in your head as you're reading it. So it was it was uh, an interesting challenge because it was something different, but it was also um, comfortable because I was able to have that creative freedom. So this issue looks like the animated series that that ran from eighty three to eighty six. Yeah, that and... was in the intention. <laughs> okay, <laughs> to some degree. Uh, yeah. Can can you can you tell us about this? Because very specifically, it's not just that, like, oh, this is drawn in a, a more open style with less hatching or cross hat, uh, cross hatching, and it's not just that. Like, oh, the, the, the blasts are drawn as red and blue lasers. Uh, very specifically, this is patterned to some extent after the model sheet style of the animated series. So mm-hmm. uh, what, what, were your, what were your references and when did you decide that this would look like the cartoon? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I kind of decided after I did the cover, because <laughs> the cover looks different, I think, than the interior art. But um, at the time when I did the cover, it was, yeah, way before I got the script. So I was just kind of like thinking, oh, well, let's try this art style. And uh, it was something I was kind of playing around with, the uh, a bit more of an ink, adding shadows um, to the characters. Uh, but then when we eventually got the script, I was like, you know what, I'd really like to try and emulate the cartoon while still giving it a little bit of um, our own signature on it, Luis and I. But um, yeah, no, I thought, well, my style already kind of leans into animation and it would be really fun to kind of pay a bit of a homage to the the cartoon. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where we got with it. And I was able to find quite a bit of reference online, thankfully with the internet. We have all this stuff at our fingertips, and uh, yeah, no, it was reasonably easy to find a lot of reference for the characters. So, and uh, I looked a lot at some of the earlier shows of the cartoon to try and make sure that I was getting the the right eye shapes and whatnot. But uh, uh-huh. yeah, no, it was. I think does it. Hopefully, that answers your question. But yes, it. Does. I kind of trailed off into the into the distance there <laughs> but you're 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 talking about the timing as well which sort of chimed a little bit with with what i suspected as as well that that as as larry was working through this uh big um 10-part series uh snake hunt uh that he was he was doing that that sort of simultaneously he was kind of building up a a buffer of of these untold tales to to kind of work on ready to drop uh, with uh, with various artists for them to do, you know, one and done stories to then give the next artist, Andy Griffith, some uh, some time to to build up some uh, some stock and give him a, bit, a little bit of buffer buffer and breathing room to 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 have enough time to to do mm-hmm. several issues uh, on the on the trot for when they then moved into the you know past the these one and dones mm-hmm. uh, and in, into the you know the regular continuity mm-hmm. again. So so when did you actually begin putting pencil to, to page, and when did you finish up on this one? Well, I think it was in early September I started it. So, and it kind of leaned into most of October. So it's, usually comics take me about 30 days to do a 20 page issue because I do the, I read the script, look for a reference, um, and then I do thumbnails 
for each of the pages and then wait for any feedback and then I get into doing the inks or the, the pencils inks and then uh, Luis is super fast so usually I'm ahead for a little bit and then he catches up and he's waiting for me to give him more pages <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah no we I think we wrapped it um, with like there was a few revisions after we had submitted all the pages and I think it wrapped around November 10th or 11th around there so so I was, I was reading I was reading about the sort of the style that you approach or your technique that the process that that you you take and it's it sounds like you use uh quite quite sort of a balance of of the old analog you know pencil on paper mm -hmm. and and also the the digital um you know technologies that that you can also combine with that with that it was is is that right Do you sort of apply a, a similar process for this one oh yeah for sure yeah no it's i still work uh pencil and paper for all the drawings so actually i use a brand called uh, color race pencils which i started using when i was doing animation in animation school and they got me hooked and they're still reasonably inexpensive so for uh an artist we can afford it <laughs> the pencils <laughs> but uh yeah no so i i do all the drawings I scan them in and I tend to work in an animation approach so I'll have the characters separate from the backgrounds when I'm doing the drawings. Some of the panels in the G.I. Joe issue that I did um, are combined so I actually did the background and the characters together but most often I'll do them separate and that way I have better control and management if I want to move things around a little bit. Uh, when I get them into Photoshop after, so, but uh, yeah, no, I scan it all in and then combine it and and send it off, and hopefully Luis doesn't scream that I put too much detail in, <laughs> so it takes him too long what, to do a page. <laughs> and what you know, what struck struck me about about the the style on this this issue particularly is, you know, and and you sort of mentioned it a little bit when you're talking about the cover that you you'd done with the with the slightly heavier blacks. There was just you know how restrained the the line work is, and 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 how much then that that gives uh, the opportunity for the colorist to to really um, you know go in and, and create the the, the texture and, and sort of looking at things you know detailing like the the cheeks and the noses and things like that mm -hmm. that you know a lot of that sort of you know filling in the gaps is is done in the is done in the, the colors and it must it must be difficult almost to to sort of restrain yourself and, and to to keep, to leave the pencils as as um uh where they are without going in and adding in all of that 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 stuff and, and having the uh the trust in your colorist to to you know finish off the vision yeah for sure yeah no it's uh yeah no using the style that we did with this issue it was definitely we're aiming to emulate the the cartoon, but yeah, no, it definitely leaves a lot of space for uh, Luis to go in and kind of add his color magic, as I call it. And uh, I, I completely trust him with all the pages that I give him. So we've been uh, we kind of have a almost a telepathic link. We don't need to really speak too much anymore. I just give him the art, and he kind of goes in and he knows what to do right away, which is great. <laughs> so that's the benefit of having worked with somebody for over 10 years. So very grateful to still have him as my colorist. So, Can you differentiate uh, the feeling or the process of working on one licensed property that is owned by Hasbro as opposed to a different licensed property that is owned by was it Columbia Pictures or Sony? Did you, did you have a different back and forth sort of editorially? You mentioned there were 
some revisions? Oh yeah. Well, those are. I think those were the revisions I had on this one. It was what was it? We had originally had a different character in the Firebat, and we replaced him. So it was a different type of uh, Viper, I believe. Ah, I'm trying okay. to remember, but um, I don't even know if I'm supposed to tell you guys this. <laughs> <laughs> Secrets. Um, yeah, no, I had to redraw a character in there, but it, it wasn't. It made total sense to have them swapped. So right. it was uh, not a problem to do revisions. So I, I love revisions that add to the story, or if I've made a mistake, I'll definitely fix it. Um, so it's not a problem. But um, yeah, no, the, the process uh, working with Hasbro has been fantastic. I've never had any uh, qualms about it. And uh, the difference between working for both companies is not, I've never really, I didn't really find too much. Um, occasionally you get a company that you work for that may be a bit more demanding, but it's been an absolute pleasure working for both of them. So yeah, no, no, uh, no issues whatsoever. And uh, I've uh, gotten to work with uh, Hasbro on Transformers quite a bit too, so I'm familiar with their how they would like things, so we try and aim to do that. In how many months will you draw another issue of G.I. Joe? How many before I get to do another one? Yes. Oh, that would be up to Tom, so you'd have to ask okay. Tom. <laughs> Could, have, have you thrown your hat in the ring and said, Tom, I'd love to draw another issue of G.I. Joe? I said that in the email with my the final submission so it's up to them or or you, if you guys really want to see another one you could yeah i mean put a little bug uh, in his ear and <laughs> spoilers for the rest of the show but oh, i would okay. <laughs> oh thanks <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah no it would be um, and, an honor to do another one and and actually um you know a lot of the the gi joe fans can be a little bit notoriously hard to please and be a little bit picky but yeah. uh, I, I had a quick look at, online at you know discussion around this this issue and and it was pretty much unanimously high praise from from joe fans and a lot oh, of people nice. saying you know that how pleased they were with the with the art and and hoping that that you would make a return so um oh well yeah, i'm humbled uh, to hear I that think it, i try not to think read reviews so i appreciate hearing the good ones <laughs> <laughs> i would be happy to see another issue drawn this way or another issue drawn like the cover more of a standard comic adventure style and less mm -hmm. of an animation style yeah it would yeah if uh, I, I could do either or so it would be up to um i guess up to tom and larry what they would like to see but uh yeah either or would be fantastic i still i still really want to draw zartan because he's my favorite villain so <laughs> maybe one day I'll cross my fingers. <laughs> yeah, and if you and if you drew him in an animated style, you'd have to make the choice as well as, as to whether you accidentally draw his cowl as hair or not. Yeah, that's right. Well, I would <laughs> probably like play around with that and kind of tease a little bit, make fun of it a bit. <laughs> so it's always good to have a bit of comedy in your in your action. So just for a little breather. <laughs> I I think my final question, sort sort of generally about the issue, is. Um, how uh, all right so uh animation's good training for for comics because in comics you're going to have to draw everything and anything like motorcycles and people and mm -hmm. horses and explosions and you know like the white house yeah um so gi joe is this particular challenge because um there are lots of good guys lots of bad guys and then vehicles, and the vehicles are all these very specific things. Mm -hmm. um, 
so uh, how this this the fanish way of asking this question is how hard was this issue to draw which sort of negates that you're a professional and you can handle challenges but can you talk about the challenges of drawing a gi joe comic specifically different from other projects you've drawn yeah i think the most challenging thing was or the thing i was most aware of was trying to make sure that i was drawing the characters to proportion to the vehicles um, and also making sure that I had kind of like the, I don't know the better word for it, the nuances of each character, because they're each very, Larry's written them in such a way that they're really come to life, like each character is their really unique vision. And I wanted to make sure I captured that. And also to kind of break the panels up a bit and to make them more, like with Ghostbusters in particular, you'll see a big difference. I feel in the way that I've laid out the panels. So I was really trying to be aware of making each panel exciting and each page, the composition kind of uh, playing into what's happening on the page, if that makes sense. So kind of like I would break, a, if it was really action-packed page, I'd try and make the panels reflect that. But um, yeah, I would say the biggest challenge maybe was the first thing I said was the matching the characters to the vehicles, making sure the sizes were correct and yeah, hoping that Larry and Tom liked what I was doing. <laughs> so. Very good. Um, and before we move on to, to the, the deep dive into the comic itself, there was one comment you made rather offhand, which I felt I had to circle back on, which was that you said that you fell into comics. And, and mm -hmm. how does one go about falling into comics? Oh, yeah. Well, it was yeah an interesting story. We had a friend of mine, uh, James Etock, he lives in the, the UK, and he was producing a book called Serial Geek, which is an amazing mm -hmm. book. Um, it covers Saturday morning cartoons, so it would be everything uh, in the, during the 80s, uh, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Thundercats. And uh, I'd done some art for him, and then he was like, oh, I'm going to do this pitch for Ghostbusters, and we'll submit it to IDW. And we did the pitch. Um, they didn't accept uh, the pitch because it was... I believe at the time it was just too much. Uh, usually with when you're doing a new property or if you're a new team, creative team, you just kind of dip your toes and do it, do four issues and see what the mm -hmm. everybody thinks of it. And um, this, I think this arc was like 12 issues, so it was just a bit too much. Really good story, though. Needless to say, anyway, the Tom reached out again to me and he was like, oh, would you like to do an issue of Ghostbusters as just a one-shot? And... I was like, oh yeah, I'd love to do that. I was a bit nervous at first because I was like, oh, I don't know if I could do a full issue, of, like a full comic, but uh, mm -hmm. needless to say it, I was able to do it. <laughs> so uh, that was kind of how I fell into it and that was the short and summarized version, the Coles notes. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah, I just kind of fell into it and then ended up doing the, the ongoing, not too f long after that, a few months later, so yeah. Wow, that is very good. That is that is that is as you say, almost falling into. Yeah, it literally <laughs> fell into it. So it, sometimes it's uh, who you know and the timing. Timing has a lot to do with stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. Uh, and obviously you have to have some uh, gumption for it too. So, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of comic history that's being created by, for example, one one artist leaving a book. 
and mm-hmm. uh, the next artist entering that editor's room. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Having the good fortune of, of being being that person. Yeah, filling the space and yeah, and just doing your best and enjoying the process. So I think that shows. Excellent. Let's uh, let's do a dive into the comic itself. Comic talk. Oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa, comic talk. Oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them. Tim and Mark discuss them. Whoa. Uh, we'll be talking issue 278, which came out at time of recording, I think, two weeks ago. So this is uh, fairly fresh off the presses. We've got, as always, writer Larry Hammer, uh, artist. Dapper Dan Shoning. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, colors Luis Antonio Delgado. Yeah, that's uh, good. N- let- letters Neil Yutake, uh, editor Tom Waltz and Megan Brown, and research assistant Diana Davis. So let's take a look at the covers. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. <laughs> Cover A is uh, from some guy called Dan. Yeah, who? Uh, we've got. Cover A. <laughs> nobody wants. Everybody wants the variant covers. <laughs> <laughs> not, not me. Oh. Well, <laughs> we've had a long discussion about about the, the place of variants in the in the market, but uh-huh. uh, yeah. not not such a not such a fan. It would be nice to to have just the cover and that cover being the ideally the best the best one. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, snow job set uh, front and center on on this one with uh some of the other arctic forces uh sort of skiing flying <laughs> and driving mm-hmm. uh, down a, a hill with uh what looks like an avalanche sort of coming up uh coming up behind them mm-hmm. uh, a lot of energy uh, here and uh, uh yeah animated style explosions yeah, and and as you say, this this was looks slightly different to the in, interiors that uh, that you hadn't quite decided on the, the the style to to be using on the interiors before you you did this, and mm-hmm. and I'm guessing just working from a very short synopsis of of maybe the the characters that might be involved in the issue without necessarily knowing the the full details at that point in time. Yeah, no, that you nailed it exactly. It was um, yeah, I only had like a, a short little sentence or two to go off of for the cover because we didn't have the story yet but uh yeah so they they were just like okay these characters are in it just do a a cool piece so i was like okay let's not show the villains we're just going to focus on the heroes because we know those guys are in it and uh yeah just make it look kind of like they're just dropping in and ready to attack so (laughs) this cover is is really satisfying because Snowjob pops because there's this circular red explosion behind him, mm. and and to create a cell shaded or quote animated style color, right? It's not just hard edges and and sort of uh, regular colors, and then there are like shade versions. In the case of this explosion, it's also or or a glow like a laser beam. It's also sort of airbrushing the color past the line, mm-hmm. but sort of as as composition. The colors here are really satisfying. Snowjob is white, but, but you really look at him and he's actually a lot of uh, light blue with a little bit of purple and gray in him. And then there's this red by, right behind him and then this dark blue sky. Um, it's mostly satisfying because it is an action cover and this is an action series. And uh, there are lots of comics where editors mm-hmm. or artists 
draw just a cool, you know, Batman crouching on a um, ledge with a gargoyle. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's really cool. G.I. Joe is an action comic, and I think generally G.I. Joe covers should be action. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm okay with a cool guy standing there in a cool pose with a cool gun. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I but See, I don't want uh, but I don't want too much of that. Um, this is also fun because um, Blizzard gets his uh, ski sled, mm. which was such a cool addition in the action figure because mm-hmm. uh, he he didn't just have skis; he had skis that clipped into this. Uh, seat and then he could on his stomach like sled down a hill Mm -hmm. and then it's really fun how uh low light gets incorporated because if he's in a vehicle we might not (laughs) see him so he's he's parachuting in right so everything about this everyone is moving left to right there's strong diagonals laser beams are coming in from the right Mm -hmm. uh there's this avalanche it's all very exciting oh thanks Um, there I think there may be a small mistake. Mm. Probably. Uh, I, won- I'm sure I, I wonder. Um, I wonder if the colors on the left side, all the way on the left, yeah. the colors around the missiles are white. Yeah. And I think that missile housing is part of the Wolverine, the green tank that Covergirl is in. Mm-hmm. I think you, you, there. Sometimes we do make color mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> and drawing mistakes. I'm glad you caught that. I wish you were around like a year ago when I was doing it. <laughs> I would have corrected that because that's something that uh, I don't. I try not. I try and avoid mistakes as much as I can. But they they are going to happen no matter what. But that's an, sometimes they make kind of neat little things to talk about. Though, so that's good. But yeah. when and you what's, what's that? What's that just immediately under the the missiles on the far left? Is that another vehicle? The front, the, like the front of another vehicle? Well, let me just take another. To, to me, it, to me, it looks like the front of the shark. S H A R C. And I think that one was supposed to be the Dominator, actually, the one that Covergirl is in. The inside. And I think, yeah, and it looks like I may have drawn the Snowcat and the Dominator together, or maybe they're separate. It's hard to tell with the Avalanche. <laughs> we can say it's either <laughs> or. But uh, I, it, I don't, I don't want it to seem like these these errors like this is not a deal breaker and this is not <laughs> yeah, like, like tim the angry podcaster or like disappointed fan this is just me saying oh i think that white thing is actually green yeah no it should I be still, green i still think the i still think the cover is great i still think the issue is great oh thanks well yeah no it, i totally see i see it now because then i can see the snowcat down near uh, snow jobs let his left knee so yeah no that should be green but you know, it's sometimes that happens. But uh, I appreciated your analysis of the cover, and I, I wanted to add that with for me in particular, I always try and make sure that the covers reflect the interior. So, but that that's one of the goals I always have. Just thought I'd add that in there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, it's yeah, it's nice to to see that sort of continuity of the the cover on into the interior. And it definitely matches nicely and although that scene doesn't necessarily happen in the inside i think it captures the uh the spirit of what's happening and you know all of the same people and the vehicles and everything so that's uh it's uh it is nice to to see the let's move on to color uh, cover b we've got jamie sullivan and colors by cullen davis uh there yeah it's a sort of uh, a spotlight on uh, Lowlight, who we don't always get to see a lot of. And uh, people speculated uh, that uh, this cover might be 
a uh, an homage to New Mutants eighty seven, which which is that the cable cover with the with the, the scopes against uh, various characters, uh, and he uh, actually he said that it was actually more informed by Alpha Flight issue twelve, which was the one with uh, the words "And one shall surely die," oh, okay. uh, a bright pink a bright pink cover with again various uh, uh, characters uh, in in sort of uh, with the scope sights uh, over the over the top of them. Uh, yeah, interesting looking cover. It's sort of a uh, somewhat um, in, in the style of maybe Tim Bradstreet on his uh, Punisher uh, mm-hmm. covers. There, I can sort of see see some uh, similarities all round. Sort of works does what uh, does what it's setting out to do well. Mm-hmm. I I like the uh, I like the contrast here that there's blue on the left and red on the right. Though it seems like I don't want a lot of G.I. Joe covers with cool guys standing in a cool pose. <laughs> this this one does make sense for G.I. Joe because Lowlight's a sniper and we should see what a sniper does. I, I while while covers can and should be exaggerations of the interior, I, I think having the Baroness, Cobra Commander, and Destro on this cover is is a step too far. Although it's not dramatic or it's not, not going to sell as well if, you know, like in the scope on the right side, it's like three random Cobra Arctic guys. <laughs> um, while the uh, the Cobras in the issue are not the ones that are on the interiors, I doubt very much that the artist knew at the time what Cobras would be on the uh, on the inside. And it was, uh, mm-hmm. I think... Uh, probably a decision to to have an interesting cover that spotlighted uh, low lights, perhaps not even knowing where it would ever be featured, or or certainly just knowing that uh, that he would be a character that would be playing a part in a future issue, and to try and do something that was centered uh, around him. And uh, so I, I don't think we can attach too much blame for for him on the choices of cobras that were used there. Yeah, that it's great that you actually pointed that out. That a lot of the times artists don't know what is in the issue it's just kind of a really small blurb that we have to work off of so um, if that if it doesn't the cover doesn't always represent the interior art or the story it's most likely due to the fact that the artist didn't know what was happening (laughs) so yeah i heard and i i I heard a comment from jamie sullivan before that was often on often the the, the case that mm-hmm. at the point of, of being commissioned for a, for a cover they wouldn't entirely know the uh, the contents of it and that it was normally only the uh, interior artist who, who might have that that privilege yeah. of uh, of being able to actually work to the contents because uh, because they're they're doing both uh, both jobs mm-hmm. uh, congratulations to uh, Colin Davis who's a who's a friend for uh, his first color work on a GI Joe comic oh nice. There's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of gray in low lights uh, blue that's sort of uh, lining up with the hatching mm. where the clothing folds are and I'm not sure if that's in the original art or in the color there's 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 more there's more black there's more K in these mm. colors than uh, than my preference mm-hmm. um, but it does it does set him back. Um, and I, I like the up, ang- I like the down angle or the, the up angle. I like that we're looking up and there's this emphasis on this uh, sniper rifle. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a bit of fun that, that Diana Davis and Cullen Davis are credited on the, the same book as as well, husband and uh, wife team. There. Nice, that's awesome. Then moving on to uh, the John Royal cover, doing what he does very well. It's a nice action shot. 
there's a snow job up front with uh, iceberg behind him and uh, the snow cat subtly in the background there with some some nice color choices from James O'Frady there uh, in in terms of you know making uh, an interesting color scene from you know what is a lot of white uh-huh. in the costumes and the uh, and the snow itself yeah snow job pops forward because there's a lot of pink on yeah. him and iceberg pushes back cuz his blue and green agrees more with the snow around him mm-hmm. but there's a real change right the snow that's closest all the way in the bottom is a lot of yellow and pink the snow in the middle is blue and with some pink and then the further we get back uh, the more sort of a pure blue it is. Mm. Um, this is a really fun comparison with the A cover that Dan drew because they are more similar than dissimilar, right? Mm-hmm. Left to right, um, diagonal action, uh, downhill, um, blasts going left and right. There's a snowcat in the back. And this one isn't sort of as fast. There isn't the speed because you don't get the sense that these two guys are moving. You get the sense that they're standing where they are or slowly making their way down the hill. But this is a fun uh, sort of miniature study for someone interested in cover design because this one has two characters in one vehicle and we're just closer to it. Mm -hmm. Whereas Dan's cover has uh, one, two, three, four, five characters and two or three vehicles and we're a little further away. Uh, right. And yet the cover where we're closer is slower and the cover where we're further is faster. Yeah, no, it's yeah. I like the uh, you notice the the difference in values for like this, the foreground, the snow is much more warm as it, and it gets cooler as you go up. So it helps direct the eye quite a lot. And I, I try and do that when I'm doing covers is to have uh, the composition kind of create a circle with your eye. So you're kind of starting at the top left and working your way around kind of counterclockwise back up. I try and design covers like that. So, but it, it's represented here in this cover as well, which is nice. So with the faces and then the, uh, if you kind of, I tend to try and squint a lot when I'm doing to see where my eye is uh, directed. And yeah, it kind of, it creates a nice counterclockwise circle pattern here with the composition. So. Cool, let's move on to the plot breakdown and find out what is actually happening in an issue. In Frozenland, Cobra have kidnapped geologist Dr. Jen Tang to help them set up pterodromes. The story opens in the aftermath of an attack on the pterodrome and rescue of Dr. Tang by the G.I. Joe Arctic specialists. Cobra forces chase after the Joes in their wolves and ice sabers. And with dwindling resources, the Joes are able to defeat the pursuing Cobras. Okay, so that's what actually happened. But, you know, what shall we talk about on the inside? I think uh, we've talked a lot about uh, the the art already. And it's the it's obviously that's the most striking part about the issue is, is how different the art looks to, a, a you know, in inverted commas, typical G.I. Joe book. You know that it's it's the I think the first comic in the certainly in the ARA um, universe where we're getting this sort of animation cell uh, kind of look to to the art. It's you know, in, and and sort of to say uh, that it looks like an animation cell is probably doing you a disservice because I think a lot of the animation cells are obviously <laughs> uh, produced in in vast quantities yeah. um, with uh, and and so this is this is a kind of much cleaner 
um, more detailed, idealized version of an animated cell, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, maybe more like the uh, the production quality of the G.I. Joe movie compared to the show. Uh, that would be a nice sure. com- compliment. Thank you. <laughs> and and uh, this being an untold tale, um, it's you know set in the past of of uh, G.I. Joe history. It's not specifically dated. There's a there's a few hints in in there as to to when it might happen in G.I. Joe history. It talks to Cobra having tried to set up pterodromes before, and there was a big uh, plot around that. Um, uh, it's set in Frozen Land. In and around issue 68, there's some slightly newer characters, newer in inverted commas, because they're probably still best part of 20-something years old, mm-hmm. but uh, the presence of characters like uh, the Snow Serpent version 2, the Ice Sabers, uh, is, it sort of puts us more in the early 90s, maybe around about issue 125, potentially. And we've got the Dominator, which is a Battle Force 2000 vehicle, but no avalanche who is is the uh the character most associated with the with the vehicle and uh he uh died in the early 100s as well so it might not be too much of a leap to to assume that because he's not the driver of the vehicle in this issue he's probably dead so maybe maybe we're talking uh issue 120s any any thoughts there tim that timeline works Overall, I love this issue because uh, it's an Arctic issue with all of the Arctic guys. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think many of us who had some of the action figures wanted to do this kind of thing where, you know, you get an you get one of the special guys like an underwater guy or a desert guy and you think. You know, a year or two later, there's another one of them, and you you can you can start to make your own special team. Uh, this is every Arctic good guy, every Arctic bad guy, and all the Arctic vehicles, and particularly one of the Cobra vehicles. Uh, sorry, I don't even remember what it's called, but it's the one that's not the the Wolf. Uh, is a you know later vehicle, very much a later vehicle. Mm-hmm. I think that's the Ice Saber. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I also love in this issue that uh, characters get to engage with their specialty. Mm. So the snow serpent isn't just some random cobra guy in the cold. He's a guy who's been here a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you read the snow serpent's file card, aren't they recruited from from up from the cobra eels? That's right. The idea yeah. is that they're like dropped into the Arctic or the Antarctic and, and they, they're left there, right? So mm-hmm. this guy's in charge. He's a jerk. There's a techno viper <laughs> mm-hmm. doing what techno vipers do, which is mm. fix things. Mm-hmm. Um, the Joe Arctic guys do Arctic stuff. They ski and they're worried about the cold. And then low light gets to be a sniper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so this is. This is really sad. You know, I'm I'm perfectly fine if, you know, Flint or Rock and Roll is along for the ride because <laughs> you might need someone with a machine gun to do something that's not so specifically Arctic. And those two guys know how to put on a white coat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But but where you, you know, it's like, what's the point of the specialties in G.I. Joe uh, unless you're going to really uh, exploit it? And this issue does this to fun effect. Uh, I also I also like that. Two of the Cobra guys who are in charge are jerks. That the, <laughs> yeah, they are, aren't they? <laughs> Snow Serpent version one, he's in charge. The mission's gone awry, and he's a jerk. And then the AVAC, the pilot, 
is a jerk because a lot of pilots have big egos because what they do is really difficult and he's a jerk and there's even a line which which refers to it you know let it ride the avec pilots are all like that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah now i got that that sense uh when i was reading it that he was a very uh no nonsense suffer no fools type of officer the snow serpent at the beginning so it was really cool to kind of hear that character in my head and I could imagine it playing out on the show so yeah it was really very cool what was a uh, what was an interesting thing as well that that was done here was that the the unnamed so snow serpent version one who's the kind of the boss here and ordering around the other cobras uh, whereas there's a snow serpent version two and when they're you know doing the toys they're not really doing an awful lot to differentiate them it's just the latest recolored re- slightly redesigned version of the same character mm-hmm. whereas was here there's, there's clearly something going on where the the different out- outfits are, are indicating some sort of rank where the the version two snow serpents are, are more junior and being bossed around by the the version one mm-hmm. yeah yeah we saw this um We've seen this a little bit with uh, the 1982 Cobra Soldier getting replaced with the 1986 Viper. The Viper's cooler and has more gear. Uh, and in the show, they're just going to stop drawing the older character because that's not a toy that mm. you can buy. But in the comics, we see both and we tend to see the Vipers. It's, it's, it's subtle. We, send it, we tend to see the Vipers sort of more prominently featured or doing more important things. Mm-hmm. I may be wrong here, but this might be the first comic appearance of the Snow Serpent as as well. Um, I am struggling to think of another time in the comics, and this seems bizarre given the you know the nature of the the design and the character, you know how cool they look and and how many stories that we have seen in the snow. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's actually appeared before this issue. I was flicked through some of the other sort of you know, frozen land issues and and uh, Arctic mission issues, and uh, wasn't able to, to to spot one. There was a you know, oh. this this cool mission that they go on in the special missions number two, for example, and that has got uh, Cobra Troopers rather than, for example, snow snow serpents. So I don't think in the U.S. yeah, a real American hero stories written by Larry, uh, we've we've actually seen the character in in print before. Oh, that's cool! A first appearance. Always like getting to do those, so yeah. <laughs> and I, I had actually just picked the. I, I had great free reign with which uh, design I was going with with the characters, so I thought I really wanted to discern the two different uh, snow serpents to make sure you knew one was the officer and the other uh-huh. were subordinates. So yeah, that's why I, I went with the two different designs. So oh, very cool. That was your that was your choice. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, brilliant, thought, brilliant, brilliant. And, choice I, and I love the sense. the more '90s GI Joe stuff too. Like that, really screen. Like the colors <laughs> uh, reminds me of the '90s. Like the extreme, you know, with spell with an X instead of an E. You know, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I got that vibe off those characters or the design, color palette at least. Yeah, and I, I think I have to look up the the Snow Serpent version too to be, to be sure. But I think the, the the colors that are being used here are slightly more muted, so it's mm-hmm. sort of suggesting that maybe the the you know the torso of that character is a slightly more brown, maybe even like a sort of hessian kind of feel to it. Uh, whereas I think the toy itself was a little bit of a brighter kind of yellow or 
orange. Yeah, I think yeah, Luis probably sometimes it like depending on the panel and stuff. Pardon me. He may need to adjust uh, the colors just to make sure that everything looks good in the panel. So. Oh yeah, and and talking about sort of uh, the the makeup of the the cast and uh, the you know also to, you know leaning into the animated look, we've we've got Covergirl and Doctor Tang there, and um, you know that's I think uh, uh, something that that you know we see from Larry's um, storytelling that that he does like to try and have a little bit of diversity in the cast in terms of uh, the you know mix mix of the sexes and and to to include um some some females to make us a little bit uh, more balanced and and we've seen you know many or several uh, doctors um being uh, being female characters and uh, and uh, cover girl while not an arctic specialist not looking too out of place you know being the the wolverine uh, driver and in this case uh, driving uh, the the dominator in instead sort of you know making a sense in terms of her her speciality and as as you said one of you said before that anyone can stick on a uh, a coat and then you're you're, you're ready for the uh, arctic mission and, and the mm-hmm. coats looking very much like the kind of uh, coats that we would typically see in the cartoon when uh, you know, Duke and Co would be going on an Arctic mission, and it would be the you know the standard look of the character, but then with this kind of uh, coats uh, over the top of the out of the uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly where I got the reference from. So, yeah, I tried to make sure that was authentic because I always liked those coats that they would wear. So I remember that from the show. <laughs> and, and what I liked about this issue as 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 well um, was the was almost the simplicity of it that it was. It was Joe's versus Cobra. You know, we we see a lot of uh, we've seen a lot of sprawling, you know, stories with with sort that stretch over many issues, and we've seen a lot of the special missions and untold tales, which are more maybe about uh, the Joes against a, uh, a generic terrorist. Whereas this is, it's it's got a it's got a elegant and satisfying simplicity of these are some Joes who have gone on a mission. Um, they've hit the Cobra base and now they're being chased and, and they're having to find their way out and defeat the Cobras who are, who are after them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Sort of an elegant uh, simplicity to, to the, to this, the story and fitting a lot in and getting it all resolved in the space of 20 pages is no uh, mean, mean feat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's, a, it's nice to have um, kind of these one-off issues because really they're, character driven and and character focused so you know you can have a really simple story but the most important part is how the characters react in that story and that's what makes it unique and it's it's, and it's nice to just have a a one-off issue where you can just read it all and feel satisfied with that uh storyline and able to move on and in in this case it's it's well like it's sort of you know a lot of these characters been around for for a long time so i guess uh you know close to to 40 years and the likes of low light um i don't know that we've never had a, a spotlight on him where he's had the opportunity to actually really properly utilize his uh his specialization and take a you know d- snipe and take two headshots in a in a row it's sort of a, mm-hmm. an impossible shot twice mm-hmm. um so so you know it's it's good to to sort of mix things up and have have those much live characters have a bit of space where they can have a, a bit more of a, a solo uh, spotlight and, and have their moment to, to shine as well beyond the uh, the, the core mm-hmm. cast that, that we tend to see. Yeah, definitely. I just want to echo what Dan just said about character. I think a lot of times G.I. Joe comics fans 
remember the action and the excitement. It might be uh, an image, a cover, a panel, a scene, some cool fight or action choreography. And the way that Larry Hama writes is uh, he is including that stuff and he's aware of it, but he's he's trying to deal with character. And, and the, the moments of this issue where the stakes are the highest are where, for example, Lowlight seems to decide to stay behind to complete the mission, where Frostbite aloud says, what do I do? Do I take these five people home and leave a guy and and finish the mission or do i risk the mission and and turn around and save my one guy Mm -hmm. these moments are are sometimes understated in a larry hama gi joe comic uh you know i think of like big dramatic soap opera moments in like a chris claremont uncanny x-men issue you know where like some character has been taken over by a bad guy and they like get them back and there's like a page of this person you know, this like Shakespearean, it's like, I can't believe I was taken over by the Shadow King, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And the the emotional stuff in G.I. Joe, it is it is as important, but it's it's sort of smaller. And because it's an action comic and it's military, I think we sort of remember that stuff first, but that's not really what makes it. You know, it's like everyone talks about um, Silent Interlude, the famous wordless issue 21 because of the the story behind the story right the writer drew the issue uh, and the and the choreography and the storytelling is so clear but the thing that the thing that we sort of forget it's like no 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 someone rescued someone in that issue and then they needed rescuing by the person that they were trying to rescue and then in the final page <laughs> mm-hmm. there's this big reveal that these two characters have a backstory and 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 the bad guys looking up in the air and he's like and we have to read into it. Like, is he upset that Storm Shadow upset that Snake Eyes got away? Is Storm Shadow upset that the audience now knows that these two characters have a connection? Mm-hmm. And uh, what what is so great about this issue is that there are some emotional beats that all the bad guys get their comeuppance, mm-hmm. right? I, you know, I like the I like the moral ambiguity and of like grown up stories where not all good guys are good and sometimes the bad guys win because that does happen in real life. But a lot of times in a GI Joe story, I want the good guys to get out of there alive. Mm-hmm. I want them to save the scientist. I want the bad guys to get punished. I want it to all happen in a satisfying way. And Hama and Dan pulling this all off in just twenty pages with six Joes and a civilian, and what? five or six different vehicles yeah, right? like, like yeah. this is this is not easy it is not mm-hmm. easy to draw these weird like if they were all the same tank mm-hmm. like and it was a made-up plane if dan could just draw like any made-up plane if he draws it wrong no one would notice but it's like we're all like waiting for dan or the artist <laughs> of any issue to like draw a vehicle wrong and then we can say like that vehicle's not drawn right i would have drawn it right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so this is a really, I don't want to say crowded, but this is a really full issue. And, you know, a lot of a lot of comics writers cannot pull off a 20-page story with this much happening. And the action choreography is really exciting. There's that panel where um, Blizzard and Iceberg have crossed paths on their skis uh-huh. <laughs> and they've made, they've made an X in the snow. Um, you know, that is a writer and an artist paying attention to where characters are in space uh-huh. and these are like vehicles that are moving right and, and this this bit where the vehicles are going through uh, a ravine and they have to go single file you know it's like 
It's like something's going to happen. One, there's going to be an avalanche or one's going to break down or there's, a, you know, someone on the overlook looking down at them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a satisfying, uh, this is a comic book worth $4. Again, to our tens of thousands of listeners, <laughs> if you are, if you are like illegally downloading the issue or if you're just borrowing a friend's copy or you're just hearing us tell you about it and you're not reading it, do go out and pay for uh, this issue. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's important to know because if you enjoy the comics, it's good to buy them because then you get more. <laughs> that's usually how it works. Uh, they'll hire us to do more if they sell well. So, yeah, it's important to to support your favorite comics. And you're you're right. It, it's a very dense issue. And uh, but it's it's really those character trademarks that they're so unique and delineated. Each character in the GI Joe universe. It's it makes it a lot easier for me to draw because I can, I can hear each specific character react to their situation. So, but um, yeah, no, it's thank you very much for the compliments. I appreciate it, and I'm I'm glad that it uh, came off as well as it did. So it's um, very good. Let's let's go into iSpy and see what teeny tiny details we might have spotted. I spy with my little eye. Dan, before I think we get into anything were there any little easter eggs in in there that you've you've put into the art that that maybe we've not talked about yet i'm trying to think if i with this issue i didn't put a lot of easter eggs in because i kind of considered emulating the cartoon as a giant easter egg (laughs) Mm -hmm. so um but uh yeah i can't I don't know if i can think of one specifically i know the interior where the fire bat is inside the Terradrome. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I used a lot of reference from the comic from the 80s for that. Because uh-huh. that was the only reference I could actually, it was challenging to find reference for the domes uh, online. So I kind of had to roll with that. But I think it worked out well. I liked the, how they handled it in the 80s. So it looked good. But um, I spent a bit of time looking at the movie. Are you talking about Pythona infiltrating yeah, that's the terror Yeah, drum? like in the beginning of the film. So I used some of that, of her sneaking in as reference as well. Um, but mostly the comic book from the 80s for that. Yeah, that, that's, that sequence with her sneaking in is one of my, my all-time favorite oh, yeah, it's elements from the cartoon. So well so done. Such a, so well cool. done. Mark, I, I, spy, I spy three things. Oof. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, and I may have forgotten uh, good, one, good. so yeah. No, good, good <laughs> things, good things. Uh, one is um, a Joe uses a grenade and then uses another grenade. And considering how almost every Joe has a grenade <laughs> on their torso, yeah. uh, pretty infrequently in the comic and yeah. basically never in the animated series does a Joe use a grenade. And as a kid, I thought grenades were really cool. I, I think I think guns, you know, I understood guns and rifles, but grenades are more like a baseball like a, a thing that you actually have in your everyday life. Mm-hmm. So I think just so the very general idea of you throw this thing, it's this big, you can throw it this far, and then it goes boom, just made a little more sense to me. So I, I really like the the bit where Iceberg uses a grenade and then uses another. Uh, I do wish the panel where he first pulls out his first grenade, um, I wish it was a little bigger because I had to sort of lean in and squint oh, okay. um, to see mm-hmm. it. Um, right. But when he uses the second grenade, it's really clear because it's a green thing in front of an orange uh, explosion, mm-hmm. and it really it really pops. Uh, my second eye spy is Doctor Jen Tang. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a film director named Mark Chang who made a, a G.I. Joe fan film a couple years ago, mm-hmm. uh, Operation Red Retrieval. It's, it's like 15 minutes, takes place in a warehouse. It looks great. And it you know, posted it online, and Larry Hama saw it and said, hey, that's neat. And so <laughs> then the two of the, then then Chang and Hama made a movie together. Hama wrote or did a rewrite on a movie that Chang and his producer were uh, developing called Ghost Source Zero, uh, which you can which you can see on the internet. You can you can get it on streaming services. Uh, so Jen Tang in the real world is the real name of I believe Mark Chang's wife. Oh, okay. So this this isn't so this is an Easter oh, egg wow. where we've mm. seen we've seen Hama put some names of you know some Hasbro people into GI Joe comics in the last few years or like one or two of his uh, friends mm-hmm. uh, or sort of uh, co-artists from years past. And so the scientist to the Joe's rescue here is named after a real person who oh. is I believe married to a collaborator of Hamas in the real world, a film director. That's I didn't even know that. That's awesome. <laughs> that uh, my cool. my last I spy is I'm always a fan of knockouts in comics. I don't mean when someone punches someone unconscious. I mean when a panel is drawn entirely in one color, or mm-hmm. a layer, uh, and the panel where um, uh, near the end of the story where Lowlight shoots one of the bad guys in the head. The whole panel is just colored red. Mm. Uh, just as a background and the sound effect because the character is all in silhouette which is about the level of uh, violence so I don't need a G.I. Joe comic to get any more graphic than this Mm -hmm. Uh, so as an old school comic coloring technique right something that's very exciting or passionate or angry or fiery or violent you just color it all red or all blue Mm -hmm. so those are my eye spots one, uh, one, I've not got too many things that we've not talked about already, but uh, one of them was just the, a rare appearance of the Dominator, the Battle Force 2000 vehicle. Um, yeah, very rarely used in the in the in the book. Possibly, possibly just that that previous appearance that we were talking about when uh, they were in Frozen Land uh, last with the the Battle Force 2000 team. Mm-hmm. Um, and and here it's it's it had had a redesign to make it a bigger, weightier, more tank-like uh, vehicle that can accommodate uh, multiple Joes, uh, Joes in there. And uh, as, a de- as a design, it, I think it works. It makes a maybe not particularly interesting vehicle <laughs> uh, a lot more satisfying. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a bit of a blocky vehicle. And I had to kind of make up a little bit of the interior because I couldn't find any reference for the inside of that vehicle. So hopefully I did all right. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was was fun to kind of, I imagined it as a giant battering ram. I know we kind of covered that in the story where it does actually ram into uh, one of the wolves. But uh, yeah, it it looks like a giant anvil sort of going through the snow. I imagine it being really heavy and very powerful. Mm. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, as as a toy, it looks very much like a toy yeah <laughs> rather than as a real world vehicle so so i think it was an, uh, an interesting change to 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 have it you know have, have the tweaks to make it look more like something that would be used in a real world uh, situation mm-hmm. yeah very good um another one i had was uh, just yeah thoughtful use of uh, the ski missiles the famous ski missiles on the on the snowcat a very 
uh, unique kind of oh, yeah. <laughs> looking missile design to the <laughs> to the toy and and something that uh, anyone who had this toy as a child will immediately recognize and and uh, remember so nice to see it being used uh, as a as a plot point mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another one was an I Spy of Things that I didn't see. So despite this being a Arctic mission and having a host of Arctic specialists, so uh, Snowjob, Blizzard, Iceberg, Frostbite uh, being the, the key Arctic specialists, they could have uh, they could have even gone further should 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 you should you guys so wanted because there was a number of. Uh, I think we'd say C or D list uh, Joes uh, with Arctic specialities as well that that they that could have been uh, really dug into uh, if we're going deep into the character benches there. So we've got Sub Zero, Cold Front, Wind Chill, Snowstorm as uh, examples of more Arctic Joes uh, <laughs> who must be just kicking themselves that they were. Sorry? It's not the Mortal Kombat Sub Zero, is it? Or... <laughs> no, I think this is a different uh, sub zero. Because I, I know GI uh, Joe went into the Street Fighter because they had like those Street they, Fighter characters. Did, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is uh, this is an actual Joe with uh, in Arctic gear. Oh, nice. Let's move on to Error Detective. Oh yeah, this is the the critique time. I'm ready. Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. I, there, I've got two which are nit, nitpicks really than, rather than any big errors. Um, so one one that I wondered about was uh, the snow cat. So it's shown throughout the issue with an empty rack of missiles and then um, has a payoff that they've got one last missile that they can use and which they deploy. And my uh, entirely plausible no prize, which um, is, is I'm sure something that you've, you've thought, think, thought about as you were drawing it, was that uh, unlike the, you know, we've, we're dealing with a toy snowcat where uh, you have to have certain features for the toy to actually physically work. The the missiles sit poking out of the front of the vehicle mm-hmm. in a real life military missile launcher situation that probably isn't particularly realistic or or safe and the <laughs> missiles would actually sit much further in back in the rack mm-hmm. out of sight so when they are shot um they come out of almost nowhere so the, the the reason that we've not seen any missiles in the rack is is just because they sit much further back and you wouldn't expect to see them that sounds like a good explanation i like that <laughs> that works Okay, good. Yeah. Um, my other one was, and, and Tim, as a, as a more of an academic man than, than me, you might have a thought on this, was Dr. Tang was in Helsinki giving a dissertation. So a dissertation is typically a long piece of academic writing based on original research and submitted as part of an undergraduate or postgraduate degree. So giving a dissertation would uh, uh, not necessarily be, you know, a talk, so, so, uh, and she probably didn't, as a doctor already, she probably wasn't going all the way to Helsinki to just hand in a uh, dissertation. So mm-hmm. uh, probably she was uh, actually delivering a presentation on her dis- dissertation and just saying that she was giving a dissertation was just a, a shorthand way of saying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> mine, mine is that the, uh, the AVAC, the Firebot pilot has a little circle on each shoulder. Mm-hmm that lines up with a rivet from an action figure where an arm connects to a torso. Yeah, maybe I accidentally did that. <laughs> and I, I 
I I didn't notice it as I was reading the issue, but in flipping through it while we're talking, yeah. I'm looking at this panel and I see this circle on his shoulder. There's so many bits to these costumes, you know, where one fabric tucks under, you know, a, a, a glove or a gauntlet or, you know, there's a, a, a holster or a strap. Um, myriad of reasons why this guy on his shoulder pieces would have a little groove shaped in a circle <laughs> on the front of it. Well, that's that's my attention to detail with the characters, because I, I was probably <laughs> looking at the action figure, I would guess, thinking back on that. And uh, yeah, I, I was, that's one of the things I really like to do no matter what IP I'm working on, is just to make sure it looks as accurate as possible. So I was right down to the bolts on that guy. <laughs> <laughs> the... Um, Dan, I, I suspect that you consulted uh, an animated episode from 1985 called Hall Down the Heavens for reference on the Snowcats. Is that the one where he fights um, the, the polar bear? The snake eyes uh, fights the polar bear? Because I, I referenced that one quite a bit, just for the snow. Sort of remembering the beginning of the episode where the, the cobra, isn't cobra melting like all the Cobra's like taking over the Aurora Borealis and the snowcats are sort of melting in the snow. I remember the beginning of the episode. Not you know, I don't think I've, no, I don't think I referenced that one, but I wish I had at the time. <laughs> Cause that's, uh, where were you <laughs> the, when I was the reason, <laughs> the reason why, the reason why I thought this is that, um, the, the snowcat vehicle itself is, it's a little short and in that episode, they're drawn very tall. And uh, there are a couple panels here where the snowcat is drawn very tall. And, uh, you know, like I was referring before to sort of the challenge of drawing this property because all these vehicles are very specific Uh and we want them to look uh, accurate to the toys. One of the other challenges is um, even if you have good reference on a toy, uh, from the internet, you don't necessarily have it standing next to another vehicle, right? So in my mind, the Dominator is bigger than the Snowcat. Mm-hmm. But, and I could figure that out from the internet, maybe by looking at their original prices, like their retail oh, prices. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> but I only had one of these. So in my mind, I have a good sense of how big uh, a human is next to a Snowcat and a Snowcat next to one of the other vehicles that I did own. I actually don't know, if I was to draw a story, I actually don't know which of these two vehicles I would make bigger and which sort of should be bigger. Mm-hmm. So my, my other I spy was, I thought I figured out what episode you were using for <laughs> reference, but also, you know, at a certain point, if it's just like screen caps and like mm-hmm. uh, two weeks of like uh, uh, harried Googling, uh, it's, it's sort of, it's probably a lot of everything. It's like, well, this mm-hmm. guy has a photo on his eBay li- listing and this person, she has a blog and she talks about this one episode. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of, you're right. It was a lot of kind of, for lack of a better word, Frankensteining reference and kind of bringing it all together and hoping that I've got it accurate. So, but uh, yeah, that was, like mm-hmm. I had mentioned earlier, I was, that was one of my main focuses was to make sure that the characters and the vehicles were as close as I could get them. Would you, and would you ever go to the extent, for example, of, of you know making uh, a 3D model of, of any of these vehicles went to, to sort of, you know assist you in, in your, your drawing? I know that some artists do use that a little bit as a, as a tool. Um, I think it would depend. Like if it was a, a vehicle I was going to be drawing a lot of over the course of quite a few issues, I would spend the time doing it. But 
Um, I don't really have a lot of extra time to we with comics in particular the lead the lead time isn't too long and the production time isn't too long, so I don't really have a lot of time to dive deep into each one specifically that well. But if I like, for example, with when I was working on Ghostbusters, there would be things that I would actually spend a bit more time kind of uh, chiseling out so that I knew exactly how it looks from each angle. But um, for the for this issue in the G.I. Joe, I, th I felt confident enough with the amount of reference I had with the toys. I was able to find enough rotations to kind of understand how it worked. I, I know with the Dominator, like you had mentioned, it looked more like a toy than a vehicle. and. I did recognize that, so I tried to like take off some of the the uh, the hinges, I guess, so it didn't look like a toy. <laughs> yeah, and I, th I think you know it's one of those vehicle vehicles that sort of slightly passed the uh, the peak of the GI Joe's popularity. So, in in terms of the people that that had a snowcat and and sort of have tremendously fond feelings mm -hmm. <laughs> and and very strong recollections of exactly what mm -hmm. a snow snowcat looks like versus a dominator which is uh, a, a vehicle that i've never had and never had any interest in owning mm -hmm. um you know very very different so i think uh, you you'll be given a lot more leeway to to just do your own thing and and sort of um, change up a dominator versus a, a snowcat where where that's kind of you know very firmly etched on on people's minds and memories mm -hmm. yeah for sure I, I think um, I get the sense from reading all of Marvel's Star Wars comics from the last couple of years that I get the sense that someone in editorial has handed over to the various artists mm. 3D models of all of the spaceships mm -hmm. because they're all always drawn perfectly and sometimes they stick out because they're drawn too perfectly. They might, they might look uh, like he traced the toy drawing or something or like the, a photo do you mean or no like a like a like a google sketchup 3d model. oh i see okay like not not a photo of a toy um and sometimes it looks like you know the artists are copying and pasting or as they shrink one of these tracings or like models in photoshop next to art that they've drawn by hand like the lines are all still incredibly perfect mm. and as they get smaller and smaller they just sort of look like a computer a thing made by the computer mm. and not mm. like a stormtrooper's helmet or something which someone drew. Uh, i get you yeah. um and i i know that several years ago during the brand new day era of spider-man um someone made a google sketchup 3d model of peter parker's apartment interior Ooh. which was given to the artists who were working on that run mm -hmm. Uh, so that they could keep it all consistent. Um, and, you know, in the case of Star Wars spaceships, maybe one artist made it and shared it with a bunch of others. Maybe a bunch of artists made their own. Maybe, like, Lucasfilm provided it to Marvel. Maybe an artist said, no, I can do this by hand. And the editor said, okay. Mm -hmm. um, my, You know, you see this in, in animation. You know, it's like uh, when, when hand-drawn and, and 3D stuff get mixed, um, sometimes the two don't mesh together. You know, when they do, like in a movie like The Iron Giant, uh, it's pretty satisfying. Uh -huh. But, um, you, you know, drawing vehicles is over and over and over in perspective is really hard. Um, so to to the artists of G.I. Joe comics <laughs> who struggle, particularly with not much reference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for sure. Yeah, no, it's... Thank you. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Th thank you for... Oh, yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, yeah, for something like... Um, 
when you mentioned the Spider-Man with Peter's apartment, I think, you know, if it's going to be over a, a long arc and you have a lot of different artists working on it and you want that um, symmetry, you want to make sure that it's, yeah. you know, the artists have the same reference and uh, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, I hear that. Okay, very good. Yeah. Let's look at uh, some hammerisms in Hammer Time. Time to beat the soles of your boots with my face. Sucking chest wounds, red ninjas, brain scanners, rubber hooses, blue ninjas. And then some more sucking chest wounds. Hammer time. So uh, not too many here. The the ones that I picked out were were a, a new turn of phrase that, that Larry has obviously become uh, latched onto and, and, and has become fond of, which we've seen. Uh, across a few of the recent uh, issues where when people are running empty on their ammo they are winchester so mm -hmm. they have run out of their ammo we've seen that a few times and we've also got the hammerism here of and we've talked about this already a cobra pilot acting like a complete asshole towards his ground crew and uh, it not entirely being to his advantage because uh, yeah maybe if he'd have greased that wheel a little bit more uh, his uh, his missiles would have been in better working order <laughs> at, uh, when it when it came to needing them. I've got two uh, hum, hammer times hammerisms, and they're they're a little subtle. One is um, there's a, there's a line of dialogue. Nice turned right into my sight picture. So the cobra wolf is uh, chasing the dominator. And uh, this is this is something where uh, Hama in his stories is aware of, uh, you know, in action movies, like the good guy just like picks up any gun and knows how to use it. The safety's mm -hmm. off. The clip is full. He just like runs forward, fires and takes out all the bad guys. But in real life, you know, you miss more than you hit. Um, and there's there's things like turning corners and, you know, your 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 bullet or your, your missile can only go straight. Um, and Hama is in his action comics keeping track of number of missiles or number of bullets in a clip and the the physical space of it's like no can my shot actually hit the target or sometimes someone turns right into my line of fire and then the other one is um uh page three panel one the uh snow serpent says you have an hour and then on page six panel one uh one of the joes says uh, it's going to take an hour at least to fix this. And so Hama is setting up a uh, a limitation to the story so that as a reader, we know, you know, in, in five or 10 pages, this hour is going to be up and like that plane's going to be flying and or this uh, snowcat's going to be driving um, just as a way to to head the story threads to their conclusion mm -hmm. yeah it gives it a, a sense of immediacy you know it, it there's a, a time limit and it kind of creates more tension so it's a, a really good story element to use good mm -hmm. let's move on to colloquialisms there used to be a pudding that was over egged you know the pudding you know the pudding at first it was british but then it was commonwealth you know the pudding, you know the pudding, but now there's a new player in town, a comic book writer of 
of some renown. He's using real-world examples and peppering the issues with with lots of samples. It's a Larry Hammer colloquialism. He's talking G.I. Joe and all its heroism. Can you guess what it is? Is it something new? Now listen as Larry drops a slice of real life on you. A colloquialism that I spotted was uh, the use of the phrase caught flat-footed. Now, I don't know if uh, how, you know, being a Brit, I don't know if this, if this is something that is in common usage or, or not, but it's not one that um, I've particularly encountered much and certainly wouldn't use in, in everyday language uh, myself. Um, is it one that you guys are familiar with? I, I've heard it in reference to police usually, or like in old shows and comics, uh-huh. that usually they call them flat foots. So yeah, yeah I, have, I have heard the term before. Yeah, yeah same, same here, but I can't offer any any mm. additional yeah i wonder if that, that that sort of reference to uh to police is is a slightly different reference i guess that a, a, a police reference would probably be a reference to a beat cop who's doing a lot of walking uh-huh. and maybe you know wearing down the heel of their 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 boots in in the case where here where it was being um specifically caught flat-footed that's a reference to being caught unprepared and being taken by surprise and apparently originated from American baseball at the beginning of the 20th century. So I guess um, not being quite ready for for the pitcher chucking the ball at them, I guess. Interesting. Maybe your feet aren't quite uh, lined up in the right position, and I think belonging to a similar origin to uh, being on the back foot, I believe. Uh, I never knew that. Thank you. (laughs) That's quite fast. I always like learning these little things. These little intricacies. So that's great. And then uh, let's move on to favorite line of dialogue. Favorite, favorite line, line of dialogue. Dan, should we start with you? Did you have a favorite line um, from from this? I kind of I can't pick one, but I just liked everything the officer said because he was just so angry the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> it was just quite these a lot of ca- fun to draw. Him. <laughs> yeah, the, these kind of characters, Larry has you know he's really able to cap- capture, and I think it sort of brings out some of his uh, his best dialogue moments when he's got these bombastic over-the-top baddies uh-huh. and it was actually one that i selected it was near the beginning of the book the snow serpent is saying is there anybody still standing who is capable of delivering a coherent after action report bring that techno viper here mm-hmm. <laughs> that's awesome so they're tongue twisters aren't they the, uh... <laughs> so snow serpent set down by the it. seashore <laughs> <laughs> Tim, did you have a favorite one? Uh, it's the final panel of the first page. The snow serpent. Spare me the obvious. Dismount and help these hapless idiots before they manage to make things worse. <laughs> which which um, both reinforces, you know, what we've known for a long time and that Cobra does not have as much expertise as the Joes, but also that, you know, it, we're surprised when one Cobra does. Yeah. And that this this guy like I'm I'm worried about this snow serpent because he's going to be a tough cookie for this yeah. issue, mm-hmm. but also this this dialogue represents on this first page that the story starts in media race that uh, the pterodromes have already have already been attacked and the scientist has already been saved and 
this is something that happens in a lot of G.I. Joe comics, and I'm always very excited. You know, it's cool if there's, if, you know, the first five pages are like Hawk and the Joes back at headquarters and Hawk saying, go to the Arctic, mm -hmm. save this scientist. You know, here's who we think is going to be there. I want you and you and you to take this vehicle. That's exciting, too. But you don't always need that. And some of my favorite comics, I, I flip open the cover and on the first page, we're halfway into the mm -hmm. story. Yeah, it's it's great. And it's it's great. It's a great establishing first page and, and, and dialogue is sort of um, introducing what's happened. We're right in the middle of things and we've got this sort of bombastic uh, snow serpents. Yeah, maybe who's got a little bit uh, more of a skill set than the, your typical Cobra. And as you say, you could quite easily have had a have had a story where we see the kidnap, we see the rescue, we see them blowing up uh, the pterodrome and, and driving away. And that's and that's the end uh, where so it's, it's sort of picking up almost at, at the end of the, the typical story and there was a, there was a, a great gi joe special missions issue where i think we've had a it was a, like a two three parter uh where the joes are in uh a mountainous uh area i think tibet or somewhere like like that they're on a, on their mission uh doing you know a more typical missiony thing and then the, we cut to another issue which is the the evac crew uh in in the tomahawk helicopter who are making their way to actually capture them and and sort of then the the storylines sort of join up where we've had this uh, helicopter crew who've had their own mission of their own and, and uh, a huge amount of turmoil getting from a to b to to actually rescue the joes and uh, sort of you know coming coming to a head and it's a, a n nice sideways look at at the typical storytelling mm -hmm. and I, I guess we're all in agreement that the officer was the mvp of the issue <laughs> since we all picked the uh him is the favorite quote <laughs> i think yeah it gets my vote the the snow serpent yeah yeah uh i i kind of want to go for low light because uh i i don't think we've ever seen him use his skills as a sniper and 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 he's he's such a contrast he's the guy in black everyone else is in white uh he's the loner in the he's the guy who's almost left behind mm -hmm. um but snow serpent is a is a close uh, second okay. That sounds good. Yeah, well, Low Light's a classic, so he was one of the reasons why I was like, yep, yeah, we got to do this one. <laughs> I, have, I have one last quick yeah, question, sure. if I can. Dan, all of the snow, did you draw the snow or did uh, colorist Lewis draw the snow? Oh, I, I left the outlines for the snow. <laughs> like, the, do you mean the falling snow or the snow on the ground? Yes, oh, yes. The, the, Thank you. The, the falling, the falling snow, snow, I did that, and I would add it in after. So, and it, it's just basically color hold. It's not, there's no line on it. I wanted it to actually look a lot like the cartoon. So I looked a lot at right. how okay. they handled snow, and yeah, no, I added all that in. And sometimes I would add it in uh, before he'd color it, and sometimes I would add it in after. It depends on uh, what was happening on the page. I can't remember which pages we did that exactly with, but it was kind of 50-50. He didn't mind. Luis didn't mind because that was less for him to color. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so with the the issue all wrapped up on our discussion, I think it's just left to us to to give you a massive thanks for for joining us and discussing the the issue. It was really good to to get uh, your take uh, and find out more about uh, about your story behind the story, uh, and yeah, particularly for taking the time to to get up at the t <laughs> so early in the morning hey. to to catch up yeah the the early joe catches the cobra they say so <laughs> no it was a it was a pleasure to uh, discuss 
uh, G.I. Joe with both of you and to kind of go over the comic and a little bit of my my insight to it. Hopefully I've answered all your questions and, uh, and double hopefully that I'll get to draw another one in the future. We can chat again. Yeah. That is definitely a sentiment that is echoed. We look forward to to getting you back on the on the book. Excellent. Not too far down the line. Awesome. Indeed. Yeah, Thank my you, pleasure. Dan. Thanks very much for having me on. Oh, and before you go, um, would you like to promote anything? What have you got to to tell us about that you're working on next, and where where should people find you? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter under Danny Shoning, which is pretty simple. Um, I'm also on Instagram. I have Dan Shoning on there. Um, occasionally I'll do Twitch streams, so I'll draw live on Twitch. Same name, Dan Shoning, which is easy. You know, I made it easy for everybody. <laughs> and uh, currently I am working again with Eric Burnham, and uh, who I worked with on Ghostbusters, and Luis Delgado, who we've talked about quite a bit uh, in our discussion, and we're doing a Godzilla comic. So... Oh, um, that will be coming out in April, I think next month, the first issue. So, yeah, so it, and it's, a, it's more of an animated kind of leaning into Disney Pixar with that. And it's a different take on Godzilla. So if you're if you like Godzilla, it would be cool to see Godzilla and G.I. Joe mixed together. I would <laughs> I would like to see that. I don't know how that would work, that but work. it would be cool. <laughs> there are some in later G.I. Joe, there are some monster hunters uh-huh. they're uh in big armor and the toys came with sort of play-doh for oh, their right. armor so th- th- there's there's sort of I a way to look do those it. up that could after be an the in. interview i'm gonna yeah. go and just look at that <laughs> you're gonna have you're gonna have to pitch that now as a as a, a, a limited yeah that, that's what we'll be talking about versus Godzilla's. <laughs> for sure and you, uh, yeah, on your on your pitch notes. And did you know there was a specific uh, GI Joe sub branch which was all about monster hunters? So, uh... Yeah, I never knew that. So this is awesome. <laughs> that's great. Okay, we'll just take ten percent. That's fine. All right. <laughs> right. Lovely, <laughs> lovely to have you on board, and really enjoyed uh, the discussion. Thank you so much for yeah, joining. Yeah, likewise. Us. Thanks very much, guys. You take care. Um, so yeah, that was great. Tim really enjoyed talking to to Dan. Knows his stuff, and a great issue. I think. Um, you know, I wouldn't have felt ashamed uh, giving my Yo Joeish score with him online, because uh, even because uh, I really enjoyed the issue. Yeah, uh, good, good guest. Uh, good on you for thinking to get him, and good on Dan for being available and wanting to talk. I am ready with my score. <laughs> okay, go on. You go first. Eight point five. Ooh, that's high. It's uh, certainly the highest you've given so far, isn't it? I think I'm gonna go similar i think i'll go eight i'm attempting to go higher i don't know that there's necessarily an issue from the idw era of era that uh i i've enjoyed more to be honest yeah it certainly is not jumping to my mind off the top of my head but yeah it's if if not my favorite it's certainly up there it, it, it's a it's a you know really fun story the the production values on on this issue and the, in with the with the art just you know really you know sung and uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Like to see uh, to see Dan get back on this ASAP. Nothing, to take nothing away from other artists who are currently drawing issues of GI Joe, I would love to see more issues drawn by Dan Shoning. In terms of you know how this issue could be a nine or a ten, I'd like it to be five or twenty pages longer. <laughs> I, I really like holding a double or triple sized comic book. This might be 
um, my lack of familiarity with some of these Arctic vehicles, but there was one panel uh, where I had a little hard time following uh, the action. Uh-huh. And and that's that's actually that same panel I alluded to uh, where with on the, the Dominator, with the someone's grenade, saying... Uh, no, no. Um, uh, nice. Turned right into my sight picture. Mm-hmm. And I, um, and I, so that dialogue seems to, tells me that someone has, has turned and in the panel, I think I just see two vehicles driving straight and in comparing how these vehicles are to the previous panels, I can't immediately tell that, uh, a vehicle has turned. So I, it's, I think it's it's covered in the dialogue where the snow serpent in the second to last panel says, slew around, get those mm-hmm. Joes. So he's telling mm-hmm. someone to turn. And then in the next panel, I think I think the visual is that someone has now turned. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of want to see a vehicle like with a blur where it's turning or with its tracks having just turned. And a couple pages later, Dan actually draws uh, the snowcat on the second to last page. Uh, on the second to last panel, above the panel where uh, Lowlight is being a sniper. Uh, okay, let's do it. Dan draws the snowcat twice in one panel, and yeah. Luis, his colorist, the colorist, um, pushes it back. So it's like a blur. You know, it's like a panel where you see Spider-Man four times, yeah, and yeah. the three, the three ones, he's like getting to the position where he lands, mm-hmm. and he's drawn. He's colored in lighter. Um, so I, th- I think this is what I needed in that other panel that I referred to. Um, but uh, um, eight, 8.5, great comic. Yeah. The very ending, I, I was a little, you know, I thought that, that low, right, low Light was taking quite a big risk sort of coming at the Joes in the uh, the Cobra <laughs> the cobra vehicle without warning them, though, uh, sort of uh, setting himself up for a risk of friendly fire. Uh, that's true. At the same time, uh, they're all out of missiles, and uh, didn't didn't frostbite. Sorry, didn't iceberg say early on? Um, but five point five six NATO just bounces off their frontal armor. <laughs> right. So I'd have to right. I'd have to check which of the two Cobra vehicles he's talking about. But yeah, I yeah. think we've established that. Um, yeah, they're sitting ducks and. Uh, can't well, that, that iceberg iceberg is safe to drive right up to the Joes in a Cobra vehicle without getting shot. Very good. Um, let's have a quick toy talk. Mark talks about toys, ho ho. He talks about G.I. Joe. He talks about all the toys from the comic book and the animated show. Mark talks about toys. Mark talks about toys. So, um, yeah, just generally, I thought it might be interesting to talk about the the Arctic Joes and some of our, our favourites. I think... Um, one that I, you know, sprung to mind that may be less obvious was Frostbite. One of my favourite Arctic Joes coming with the, the snowcat and having one of the most satisfying guns of all of the G.I. Joe figures. That sort of, I don't know if it's a, an, M, an M16 with a, a mounted scope. I'm maybe getting the exact details wrong, but one of my favourites and, uh, you know, one that saw a lot of play and, uh, you know, a lot more satisfying than maybe some of the... the, the guns that came with other figures like for example stalker you know if you flash back into some of his nam missions swap out his gun for for that one uh very good frostbite is the only joe i believe who is smiling mm. and you you see his teeth and there's a tiny groove in the sculpt 
under his upper lip, under his teeth, there's a tiny recess where his, his upper teeth are, if I'm remembering correctly, my, my figure's in the other room. <laughs> um, but there's a tiny, it's as if he's got an open mouth smile and it's a tiny bit of additional articulation that's not in any other uh, figure, which even as a kid I, I recognized was uh, different and exciting. You, you mentioned when we were talking with Dan about how a lot of kids had and love the snowcat, and that was certainly true for me. The, the ski missiles, like they don't make sense in the real world because <laughs> the missile would just launch off the ski, right? You can't like actually attach it, but it's such a cool visual and the way that it's used in the television commercial for the toy with all this fake snow and you see this, you know, kid's hand pick it off and like slide it along the fake mm. snow. Um, and, you know, the ad is super exciting. Um, I'm going to I'm going to pick as an Arctic toy thing to talk about for a moment. There's a four pack of figures that was available in 1993 as a mail order Ooh. called the Arctic Commandos. Mm. And it's Stalker version two recolored, um, Sub-Zero recolored, DJ recolored, and Snow Serpent version two recolored. And this was one of the last G.I. Joe anythings that I bought during the era of Real American Hero. So it feels to me sort of both um, valuable and rare and sort of unlikely. Like this was, you know, this was at the this was at the end of things. It's like we were losing G.I. Joe's, Sergeant Savage was coming. And I love that Stalker's new colors are similar to his old colors. It's just a small change, but that Sub-Zero's been inverted. So his white is now blue and his blue is now white. DJ sort of splits the difference. Uh, his colors, if you squint, have a similar treatment to his original figure, and yet there's just more white and blue. And then as neat as I think that Snow Serpent version 2 is, it's sort mm. of under-detailed compared to the original Snow Serpent, who's just got all this stuff on him and comes with a bunch of accessories. And the snowboard is cool, but it feels a little, you know, 90s extreme. <laughs> Cowbunga. Yeah. And I like the colors for the Snow Serpent version too, but they don't make sense. Like it's it's not enough Arctic. It's just like cool Cobra colors. Mm -hmm. And uh, version two sort of splits the difference. It's like half colors that make some sense in the Arctic. And yet there's some red and purple, yeah. which says Cobra. And how, where did, this was mail order only, was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. This is one that I never had and, and never never was on my radar before. So yeah, interesting. It's also fun that it's 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 a mix. It's three good guys and a bad guy, which is instant play value. <laughs> if this is the only thing you get, you can immediately have a game with a story. Yeah, and you don't have to imagine a bad guy or a good guy. Yeah, he's in trouble though against three Joes. Not good odds, as they said in the book itself. <laughs> Uh, very good. So that's that. We'll uh, save some G.I. Joe merchandise for the next time we speak, and uh, which leaves us just enough time for a short bout of innuendo. Attention. At this moment, you are now listening to a talking innuendo. If you are offended by words like sucking, flesh wound, willy, Pete, balls, crystal balls, hypno shield, whatever, 
Take the tape out now. This is not a pop album. And by the way, suck my grandmother's brick in a Prada handbag. Now, sometimes G.I. Joe names can sound a little bit dirty, and they sound a little bit more dirty when I really try and make them sound dirty, which is what I'll do next. And uh, the aim of the game is to get a minimum of a titter, and uh, once I hear a guffaw, then I will stop the game and declare myself the winner. So uh, let's go and with uh, 10 names and see how far we get into them. Wild Weasel. Blue Ninja. It's called Blue for a reason. Flash. Stalker. Road Toad. Mudbuster. Grunt. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> what have you done? How did he get that nickname? It wasn't because of his rank. Uh, Someone uh, li- listening to a door with a cup against their ear. When I was, it must have been 85. Uh, I uh, I hadn't discovered Mad Magazine yet, but I certainly had not discovered Cracked Magazine. But <laughs> someone I knew had an issue of Cracked and it had some kind of G.I. Joe parody in it. And it was G.I. Joke uh-huh. and and I just frowned. Like I would not read it. I would not read it. I would not engage. I didn't want to talk to my friend about it. Uh, I didn't. I didn't like that favorite thing of mine getting poked fun of. Sorry, Tim. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. So it's uh, it's the duties of co- of co-host. It's let's let's just think of it as a as a healing um, and therapeutic process. Wow. Um, uh, so <laughs> that, that was good. I enjoyed that episode uh, a lot. I really enjoyed talking to to, to Dan. And uh, the next time you will see us on Talking Joe, we will be back with Jay as the disavowed crew covering Devil's Due number five and also taking a look at the battle files that were uh, came out the same time. And then back here, we will be covering... ARA 279, which will be the next part of the Untold Tales. Untold Tales Part 4, where Cobra has plans to unleash hellacious havoc from the Terrodrome. So it's up to Ace, Slipstream, and the other Joe Air Warriors to unleash justice from the skies and stop the imminent destruction from the Dirt Drome before it's too late. We've got piloting from Larry Hammer as normal and assisted by his co-pilot artist Alex Sanchez. So uh, we are bang up to date at the moment so that issue isn't even out as we're speaking so we will cover that once it is and we've had a chance to get back together and talk. In the meantime you can find us in all of the usual places Talking Joe, a G.I. Joe podcast on Facebook, Talking Joe on Twitter, Talking Joe comics or one word on Instagram and you can find us at talkingjoe.co.uk, the website which has got all of the links to everything. And also make sure you check out our brand new YouTube channel where I am trying to post weekly videos. And just up at the time of recording is the Disavowed episode two where we look at uh, the Disavowed era comics two through two with lots of fun visuals uh tim where can people find you facebook.com slash a real american book 
Instagram, a real American book, but best of all, a realamericanbook.com. Very good. And we can find out all about the year that you have been having, uh, the highlight of which was joining us, of course. Um, my, <laughs> meanwhile, <laughs> sorry. Um, and with all that said and done, you can catch us down the road. Because we've been talking Joe. And we're all out of Joes, particularly Arctic ones. Mind you, actually, we're not out because I already said that, you know, there was plenty more, you know, on the benches that could have been used. So, yeah, we, we, there's, there's, all there's still Joes, but we're out of time anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank you, listeners. Laters.